Buenas. That's the doorbell in Nicaragua. You might not know this, but in Nicaragua, houses don't have doorbells. And they're all open to the outside. So you can just walk up and say, Buenas. And that's like, ding dong. That means, I'm out here. Come out here and see what's up. What's up, everybody? You're listening to Brandon Hopper. The Life in Paradise podcast. It's been over a week since I've recorded. My life is a whirlwind. I've been working 12 hours a day for like 21 days straight. Maybe not 12 hours per day, but too much. Too much work. Anyway, I'm back. I'm recording. I've missed it. And yeah, I've got some good things to talk about. I hope you will like them. Thanks for listening. Life in Paradise podcast. Sit back, relax, and hand over the keys for the next 30 or 45 minutes. many people are doing podcasts now. Man, I remember when I was a pioneer. Now, it's like everyone's doing a podcast. So, what can you do to stand out? I don't know. But I'm just going to be myself. I got to thinking the other day, you know, you always hear people talking about how polarized our country is, how divided we are. I'm not sure how true that is. I don't know that we're divided. I think there's a couple groups of people who are at each other's throats. But for the most part, we're all Americans. And I got to thinking, like, what, what has caused people to think that we are more divided? Or maybe we are. And everyone wants to blame the president. You know, oh, it's Trump's fault. He divided us. Or it's Obama's fault. He started it all. Trayvon Martin. Look like me. Look like you. Me this. Us this. We that. I me. I this. You. I mean, it's just the way that these politicians talk. They, they, they put each other into groups. I don't think that's what's gotten us to where we are, though. If we are, in fact, divided, which everyone claims we are, I think the, uh, the, the leaders in the government, quote-unquote leaders, who are not really leaders, they're just used car salesmen, they benefit when we're fighting with each other. And so I think it, um, it, it helps create a division between the two groups if politicians continue with the divisive rhetoric. I mean, if we only have two parties, if you hate them enough, you'll come with us. There's, there's two reasons why people make decisions, to go to something or to get away from something. And the divisiveness helps them. I don't think they're the reason why we are divided. I think the reason why we're becoming what feels like more divided is because of social media. I mean, it, it allows us to congregate and socialize with people who are similar to us. And it allows others to segregate out those who are dissimilar. So these old Facebook group things have been quite the experiment. It allows people to group together and talk about things that they agree on. But what it doesn't do, it doesn't allow for people to disagree. Because if you disagree with the the subject of some group or a group of people, you're now labeled as a troll. And there's this pile-on effect where, you know, someone who disagrees with a notion speaks up, one person goes at him, and then another person goes at him. And then when everyone who's kind of in the woods watching figures out that their opinion is congruent with all the people who are attacking the person who spoke up, they jump on too. I mean, it's like a, it's like a video of, on Worldstar. <laughs> 50 people beating up one guy. I feel like that's kind of what Facebook is now. 
And, you know, for the record, everyone wants to force diversity. They want to ensure that communities are appropriately diverse. I kind of disagree with that notion. I think people should congregate and live around people that they want to congregate and live around. And if those people are similar to them, which they mostly always are, then that's perfectly fine. I think I've talked about this before, but it, it, it ties into this divisive rhetoric that it's not necessarily divisive. You can live amongst people who are similar to you and still be a kind-hearted, understanding human. Like The notion that you can't is kind of silly. I also think that a reason for some of the division is that um, it's kind of hard to explain, but there's a group of people who feel the need to stand up for other groups of people. Although the people that they're standing up for aren't offended. They don't have any problems with anything. And so now you have two groups of people, one who thinks they're defending someone and one who thinks that the person who's defending the person is wrong. And so it's like the beef isn't even between the two people who are at each other's throats. And it's just, it's crazy to me. I, I feel like the people who are being persecuted in this country, if there are groups of people who are being persecuted, which I don't really think there are, but this country now, everyone has a voice. Everyone has the ability to speak up. If people feel like they're being oppressed, they have every right to speak up. But that's not what happens. So if you throw all the skin color and all the cultural differences and all that away, just think about it from an objective point of view. You've got a group of people who think they're defending another group of people for being offended who really aren't offended. At least that's been my experience on a personal level. Call it anecdotal. Call it what you want to. I pay attention to these things, and I ask people things. I ask people uncomfortable questions, and I'm hearing the same thing from everyone. Nah, we're not really offended. Like, we're good. But once you throw social media in the mix, people have these huge voices that never would have been heard before. You know, and even these athletes, like, I'm sorry, just because you're good at sports does not mean your opinion about a racial issue or a social issue of any kind. It bothers me that people take sides based on how loud someone's voice is or how big their platform is. Like LeBron James, whether you agree or disagree with what he says, take that and throw it away. We have a human. This human is really good at basketball. He didn't even go to college. He was that good. He played straight out of high school. We need to recognize him for what he's good at and not give him credit for things that we don't really know much about just because he's good at basketball. I mean, if the most famous ditch digger in the world got paid millions and millions of dollars for digging ditches, and he spoke out about something controversial. Would his opinion be as valuable as LeBron James? I don't think it would be, and that sucks because they should both be of equal validity. Speaking of validity, why are we not conducting controlled COVID studies in volunteer communities? Why wouldn't we allocate a bunch of tests and resources and ask communities, hey, we need uh, 20,000 people who are willing to participate in this study. Are there any communities out there where no one wants to wear a mask? <laughs> oh yeah, people would be coming out of the woodworks. Test us, we're willing to try. Okay, so now we take this group of 15, 20,000 people, we tell them, hey, you guys go about life as usual. Nobody wear a mask. If you don't like the study, you stay home or go to a different county or go to a different area. And then we could monitor them for four or five weeks. And we could say, okay, these people went about life as usual. They had a little bit of a spike. Okay, 
duly noted. Now we find another community. Hey, you guys are going to wear masks, but you're not going to socially distance. Everyone's going to go to work who wants to. Nobody can stay home unless you absolutely have to. And then we monitor the outcome. Meanwhile, what's happening in real life? We're just sitting around, twiddling our thumbs, breathing the sweat out of our masks. No one knows what's going to happen. It's a new virus. It's too new. This thing's too new. No one knows what it's going to do. How, how much longer before it's not too new? Why can't we start testing this different ideas and implement something that works? I mean, the governor of Texas, Governor Grabbit, he's not even addressing it. Bars have been closed for like nine weeks now, 10 weeks. Not even talking about it. Not even saying that, uh, hey, once the numbers come down a little bit, we're going to let half of you guys open. How are you going to decide? I don't know. We're going to flip a coin. We're going to monitor them, and then the other group, they're going to get to open too. Or you know what? If it's too bad, you guys are going to have to close back down. You know, start opening up one little piece of industry at a time and monitor it. I mean, we're still throwing arrows in the dark, and I don't understand why. We have the data. We have the ability to monitor it. We have the ability to deal with spikes. Can we start thinking? At, one, at some point, can we start thinking about this and not just stay home, wear a mask, 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 disinfect, disinfect, socially distance. It's like a broken record, really. It's like a broken freaking record. I'll tell you what, I, I can tell. People are getting tired of it. People are about to rebel. They're going to start going out. They're going to stop wearing masks. We closed the brewery at 9 o'clock. We have people begging to stay. They're dying to stay. And I'm not talking about two people, four people, eight people who are drunk. I'm talking about a tap room with about 50 or 75 people that are like, man, can we all just stay? Can we stay? We've been here. Can we stay? Can you just stay open? They're desperate. Last year at this time on a Saturday, we may have had 20% of the people that we have now. I don't know what that's from. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We got five times the amount of people who want to go out. I have not come across one person I haven't had a conversation recently about masks with anyone who isn't of the mindset of, I'm about to stop wearing this stupid thing. So I can't wait. I can't. We're going to look back on this one day and we're going to laugh and laugh and laugh about all this mask wearing and the people who were like really, 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 really supported it. And they were willing to like scream about it and argue instructions and, and gripe about it. They're, they're going to, they're going to have to defend themselves once again. I'm not hating the mask advocates. I'm not hating on them. I just think it's not effective. I think one day we'll see. Although it'll probably never be clear, but I think we'll all know. Speaking of hiding out, oh, Biden, Biden, he's actually come out and given a couple couple of speeches in the last few days. Poked his head out of the basement. They put him in front of a teleprompter, wound him up. He wrapped the screen like a champ. Cannot wait for the debates. I cannot wait. I feel bad for Biden, mainly because of the situation that he's in and how he's being propped up by the Democratic Party to play president. For those of you that think his mind is not slipping, I don't know what to say other than if I told you, hey, there's a 78-year-old, his mind's starting to slip. Would you believe me or would you call me a liar? But I also feel bad for him because he doesn't. the only fans that he has are people who hate Trump. There was no one who was screaming for Biden for president six years ago, eight years ago. He's never had like a serious following. No one's been cheering from him for the beginning. Like I feel like Dan Crenshaw, Ted Cruz, like love him or hate him. They have a hardcore following. Beta, I mean, uh, Beto O'Rourke, the, uh, oh, what was he? The guy from El Paso that wants to take everyone's guns. Yeah, he's got a hardcore following. I feel like Biden is not this guy. 
Biden is a guy that uh, he's always just lived in the shadows. I mean, he's been in Washington, D.C. for 47 years, and he's done nothing. He's got nothing to show for it. A bunch of votes, only because he has to. He's never championed anything. He's never been passionate about anything. Unions. That's about it. He's a big union guy. I'm Joe Biden. Whenever he gets confused, he goes, I'm Joe Biden. And you know what? Like, for the record, I have no problem with unions as long as they're not mandatory. I don't think that the government should tell businesses that they have to use certain workers. I do see the need for them. Don't think they should be mandatory. So, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I cannot wait. It's election time. Although we're getting a late start, it's still going to be good. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and call it right now. I've already got $100 on the line. I think Trump is going to win by a huge margin. If anyone would like to bet the contrary, that Biden will win the election, I will take the bet. And right now, Biden is still a favorite. So, you know, if you want to give Trump a couple of points because you're that confident, I'll take that too. Just name your price. I'll be the first to admit I did not vote for Trump in the first election. I'll also be the first to admit I'm going to vote for Trump in this election, and I think he will do far of a better job than Joe Biden. I'm just going to leave it at that. Speaking of junkyards... You know what one of the greatest shows of all time is? Sanford and Son. I had forgotten how great that show is until recently a buddy of mine named Kevin on his Facebook page posted, I think it was a screenshot of Sanford and Son, Red Fox and Lamont. And I was like, oh man, I forgot how much I love that show. And so I've been watching it here there when I'd stopped to eat lunch at my desk I'll go to YouTube, find an old episode, turn it on. I also did this with Dennis the Menace. I don't know if I talked about it, but I watched the old black and white Dennis the Menace from like the 50s and 60s where the mom and the dad sleep in separate beds and, you know, he's like six years old, running around with a slingshot in his pocket. And man, those shows were just good, clean, wholesome comedy. You know, there's no drama. There's no racism. There's no agenda. There's no leaning, there's no left, there's no right. It's just funny. And I feel like that's kind of what we're missing today. I don't know, maybe just because I'm so far removed from TV and TV watching, I don't see it. But I feel like everything on Netflix, like there was a point in TV shows where things shifted from like the show revolves, and forgive me for not knowing like these movie and actor TV terms, but I make beer for a living. So like these actors or the people that the show revolves around used to always be the hero. They were the good guy, you know, they were, um, Superman or what, who, whoever. And now it's like you have these shows that the first, I really remember it. And I'm sure it started before this was Dexter. Like here's this TV show where you're cheering for like a suicide killer and sure he was vindicated and sure he was out for justice, but still the cops were also after him. And like House of Cards, like these corrupt politicians that we're kind of cheering for. And it was just odd to me to see that shift. I can't exactly pinpoint when it was. To me, in my mind, it was somewhere around Dexter. I'm sure before that for the TV junkies. But yeah, think about that. Think about when you can peg that, that turn. If nothing else, it's just good, good information. But yeah, Sanford and Son kills it. Kills it. Like he is just an old dude that says what he thinks and he doesn't have a filter. And that's comedy. That's that's real life. That's an old man who's just just kind of tired of everyone. They've seen a lot, they've heard a lot, they've done a lot, they've made a lot of decisions. 
They're setting their ways. And <laughs> I don't know. They're just funny to me. Old men who don't really care what people think but have an opinion about everything are very, very funny to me. If I get old, you better believe that's going to be me. So when you get a chance, go watch some old episodes of Sanford and Son. If nothing else, the intro music will put you in a good mood. You know, I heard someone talking the other day on the radio. She called in, and they were talking about the justice system. She goes, we have a broken justice system. And I just stopped right there, and I rolled my eyes. And I thought to myself, what do you really know about the justice system? And yep, I made the judgment based on her first like three or four words. Because chances are, just if you're playing the odds, even if you throw out how she talks, which did contribute to my assumption, of course, after I listened to the call, I confirmed my judgment, and I was right, as usual. But this person knew nothing of the justice system. They don't know any statistics about any crime. They don't even know how the justice system really works. They don't understand the Supreme Court or their opinions or how they rule things. And you know what? I don't either. I don't have a solid understanding of that. I'm trying to learn more. I'm trying to figure it out. But the last thing I would do is say we have a broken justice system. I mean, that's just one of these buzzwords that people hear it and they just repeat it like a dang parrot. A broken justice system. Really? Have you ever been outside the walls of this country? A broken justice system? Like, that's Nicaragua. That's where you spend six years in jail awaiting trial for a traffic accident in which someone died. A broken justice system is somewhere where you can buy your way out of jail. I mean, we've got to stop with this hyperbole. We've got to stop. It just decreases the value of the meaning of things. So after hearing this person who claimed that we have a broken justice system, I said, you know what? I need to learn more. I need to learn more about constitutional law and the way that it works and how it's all tied together and what the Supreme Court justices do and how they vote and how they make their decisions. And, you know, there's just a lot of information there that I didn't know. So I found a really cool podcast called What Trump Can Teach Us About Constitutional Law. Actually, it's called Con Law. And no, Trump isn't teaching the class. And no, it's not really slanted one way or another. At least so far. I've listened to two episodes. It just takes the things that he says, the things that he tweets, and it breaks them down in terms of constitutional law. Now, naturally, they're going to get broken down to a point that would not be upheld. We all know that. It's no secret. The man speaks from his butthole at times. Get over it. I don't like it, but I deal with it. So either way, if you care to learn more about our justice system and constitutional law, I'd recommend checking it out. What Trump can teach us about con law. And, you know, I've talked about it before, but we've got to use statistics as metrics to gauge whether or not we're making progress. Let's just take police brutality, coincidentally. And we have people who are protesting that want less police brutality. They want fewer people, I would presume of color, to be beaten down by the cops. Of course, yes, we should all want that. Ideally, no one would be ever beaten up by the cops. Okay, so that's good. We're the good, heading the good direction. But if we're not measuring this, if we're not looking at the numbers and comparing them and setting goals, it will never end. It will never end. 
and I typically don't throw out statistics of my opinions, but I bet you 95, no, 98% of the people who are kneeling for the national anthem, who are throwing bricks through windows, screaming Black Lives Matter, who are peacefully holding signs that say Black Lives Matter, who are sitting behind their computer demanding racial justice, I bet 98% of those people, they couldn't tell you any of the statistics that they're trying to combat. So if we can't measure things, we can't set goals, we can't monitor achievements, you'll never be able to measure change. I think I've mentioned before, it's like trying to lose weight. Eventually, you've got to get on a scale. Or you'll be like, am I, am I starting to gain weight back? Or am I losing as much as I was? Like, you have to put metrics. You have to put numbers on it. That's all I ask. You know, If, if we're going to have movements, they need to be measurable. So let's take that, the measurable statistics, and dig into COVID just a little bit. Not a lot, just a little bit. No one can argue that the death rate is 1.5% of those people who test positive. So you get infected, there's a 1.5% chance you're not going to make it. Very, very, very low. That's 98.5% chance that you will. You know, it's funny. Whenever I was in the concrete business, people would always look at the percent chance of rain before we poured the concrete. Naturally, they don't want their slab to get wet when you're pouring it can get a little bit wet. It can't get a lot wet. But people would always say, hey, man, you're still going to pour? It's, it's 30%. It's, it's 40% chance of rain. And I'd always say, that's a 70% chance that it's not going to rain. We're pouring it. And knock on wood, we never had any problems. Well, we always had problems. We never had any problems caused by rain that were of any substance. And I digressed. So we can admit that there's a 98.5% survival rate. I don't think that's of question. In fact, I think that is high and great, but I think the truth be known, it's actually way higher than that. But let's just go with that. So the least amount the death rate could possibly be would be 0%, 0.0%. Will we ever get there? No, we won't. But let's just say that's our goal, right? We're going to get to 0%, okay? We got everybody on hold, in this holding pattern, on standby, waiting for a vaccine. We just got to get the vaccine, got to get the vaccine, got to have the vaccine, got to get the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine, testing, testing, testing. Okay, so if we get a vaccine, we cannot expect it to be 100% effective. We can't. The flu vaccine isn't. The flu vaccine is 40 to 60% effective. That means of 100 people who get the vaccine, 40 to 60 still get the flu. So let's just say that we're really good. Our scientists are badasses and they can come up with a vaccine that gets 50%, that decreases the death rate by 50%. Now, without looking at the numbers, wow, they cut the death rate in half. Yeah, but it was only 1.5%. So now the death rate is 0.75%. Hey, that's great. That's really, really good. But look at what we've done to get there. So now, at best, we could go from 1.5 to 0.75. So we're going from a 98.5 survival rate to a 99.25. And hey, it only costs us like $7 trillion. Absolutely crazy. We got to stop the madness, guys. We've got to. Speaking of madness, you know what's funny? is when your refrigerator light bulb goes out. And this just goes to show you like how trained our brains become. 
It's kind of like when the power's out at your house and you walk into a room and you still reach over and flip up the light switch. When you open that refrigerator door and the light's out, there's this little rush inside my brain that tells me that the power's out and I need to close the door as soon as possible to lock all the cold air in there. And that was beaten into my brain by my mother every time the power would go out. Don't open the fridge. Don't open the fridge. Don't open it. Don't open it. I'm like, but I want some Kool-Aid. Okay, well, open it and close it real fast, but don't open it and take the Kool-Aid out and close it before you put the Kool-Aid back in. And I'll say, okay, okay, okay. And I'll go, one, two, three, open it, grab the Kool-Aid, close the door. And she's like, now you can't do that because all the cold air will come out. Everything will spoil. So after enough years of that, my little brain opens the refrigerator door. The light bulb is burned out. And like, oh, crap, I got to hurry, got to hurry, got to hurry. And then, of course, it clicks back on inside my little brain that the power's not out, and that I can take my time and stand there for three minutes and bitch about nothing being in the refrigerator to eat that I don't have to cook before I close the door. I mean, what a great country. What a great country we live in. The power goes out so infrequently that we're not worried about it. We really don't. It's like the thought of the power just going out for no reason is non-existent. If the power goes out for no reason... You just assume that it'll be back on within a couple of minutes. I've been to lots of countries in the world. The power goes out, and you're like, uh-oh, how long is it going to be out? <laughs> and you guess, you all bet on how long before it comes back on. And that's because we're capitalists. We're a capitalist country, and businesses are here to make profit and to win and provide great service so that they can stay in business and continue providing great service. I mean, our country started... Because we were sick and tired of being told who to worship, how to live, high taxes, centralized government, and the people didn't have a voice. And here we are. There's a group of people in this country right now that want to change everything about capitalism. They want to make it where the government has more power. We pay more in taxes. We have less freedom. And it sounds great. It sounds great to lift up the bottom X percent of the population. But no matter what, there will always be a bottom X percent of the population. There will always be a top X percent of the population. What socialism doesn't allow for, it doesn't allow for breakthroughs or technology. I mean, who makes the iPhone, U.S. or Norway? Who has the most medical breakthroughs every year, Sweden or the U.S.? Where do Canadians go when they want good surgery by qualified doctors in a hurry? Canada or the U.S.? Yeah, but capitalists are greedy. Yeah, no shit. Everyone's greedy. That's why capitalism works, because it takes greed and it capitalizes on it. No, that's not what capitalism means. But everyone's greedy. Don't believe me? You ever applied for a new job? You ever gone into negotiations about how much you're going to get paid? Who do you negotiate for? Yourself or the company? You ever get your power turned on? You ever shop for electricity? You want the most expensive electricity or you want the cheapest electricity? You ever found a scratch and dent item in the store and gone to the manager and been like, hey, can I buy this? And I'll and for a discount, I'll take it off your hands. You ever use Gas Buddy to tell you where the cheapest fuel is? You ever had work done around your house and gotten multiple quotes to make sure you're getting the best price? You ever bought tires and asked them, hey, is that the best deal you can give me? Have you ever bought a house and just offered them the asking price? Or do you try to get it for less? When you go to the bank to shop for a loan for a new house, 
do you just take the interest rate they give you or do you look around and see if you can find the best interest rate you can possibly get? If people want to give to the less fortunate, they should. I encourage it. It's admirable. It's advisable. I feel like people do better when they give. It's good for your health. It's good for your soul. It makes you feel good. Yeah, but that's not why you should give. Well, maybe it's not, but if it's a byproduct, that's fine too. And the idea that we all give our money to the government and let them pick who gets the distributions is crazy to me. Absolutely crazy. Not only because of their inefficiency, not only because most politicians are corrupt, but it's crazy to me that people don't have the mindset to figure out where to give their money to and do that. And so instead of having that freedom, they'd rather just hand it over and someone else deal with it. And that got me thinking about the analogy of two pigs, right? So there's two different kinds of pigs in this world. There's two different kinds of environments that pigs live in. You have one pig who's born in captivity. He lives in a little cage. He gets all of his food, doesn't have to forage, gets it all. The downside of that is that he's stuck in his cage. He doesn't get to see the world. He doesn't get to move around. But he doesn't have to worry about anything. He gets it all. The other pig, the pig who wants to forage and roam and not be constricted to one little area, he has to deal with the finding his own food and finding his own water and finding his own mate. Nothing is given to him. So from that analogy alone, you can see that freedom and comfort is an inverse relationship. It's like a teeter-totter. One goes up, the other must go down. It's necessary. Until we can figure out some other kind of way, which I'm not a big fan of people saying, well, we can just figure something out. Like, there's got to be some way to manage it where, like, you know, we can allocate limited resources in, like, an infinite amount. Okay, what do you suggest? Well, I don't know. I'm not an expert. Yeah, my point exactly. Thank you. So if we can admit that freedom and comfort or safety or whatever you want to call it are inverse, we can say, okay, now we've got to find a happy medium. We've got to find somewhere in the middle where we're not keeping the guy who wants to forage and work and find his own stuff and have the freedom to do whatever he wants. Because if we favor in too much of the captivity pig, now the dude who wants to roam, he's stuck. He can't roam. Conversely, if you turn the captive pig wild... He's not going to make it. He's not capable or he doesn't have the desire or for whatever reason, that's just not what he signed up for. He would rather not have to worry about anything, have everything given to him, and just live life. To me, you know what that's called? You know what that sounds like? Prison, you know? <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the wild pig. I want to be free. I don't want to be in captivity. If I don't work, I want to be the one who suffers. And a, a society or a government or a country, it has to lean one way or the other. You have to go to one side or the other because they are inverse, right? You're never going to get it perfectly balanced because you're still going to take away from one to give to another. And I'm of the opinion that when this country was founded, it was hardcore every man for himself. As time goes on, there has become a growing population of people who want the opposite. They want to be in the cage. They want the free food. So just think about that. Think about that when you vote or you make decisions or you're supporting policy, you're disapproving policy. Every time you add policy or you add rules, you're taking away freedom. No matter what it is, no matter how small or tiny or insignificant you think it is, it's big for somebody. 
I don't like the idea of taking decisions away from people. Now, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, but, but people are, are dumb. They, they, don't, they can't make decisions, so we have to make them for them. I disagree. I think we should be out of the business of making decisions for people who might make bad decisions for themselves. I think we should let people make decisions and then let them deal with the consequences. That's how I was raised. I hardly had any rules as a child. Every now and then, my mom would tell me to be back by a certain time because I think she just felt like she should. And as a high schooler, you shouldn't be out till 4 o'clock in the morning. But for the most part, I had free reign, especially when I had my own truck. But, you know, I was respectful. I told my mom where I was going to be. This is before cell phones. But I told her where I was going to be, where I was going, who I was going to be with. And that's it. She didn't say, well, be home by a certain time or you got to do this. You got to do that. It was always like, okay, go. You know, I had the freedom to buy my own clothes. She would give me money for my school clothes. That's it. Here, go. You buy your own clothes. You buy your own shoes. If it wasn't enough money for the shoes I wanted, I had to pitch in more. And I just wonder if the reason that we're seeing this shift is because parents don't take it upon themselves to raise their kids that way, to teach them how to forage and look for things and save, and stockpile, and manage. So while we want to sit back and we want to blame the government and blame the politicians, I'm not sure if that's the right angle. I mean, sure, it has something to do with it. But we have to remember that we control the politicians. They make policy that keeps us happy. And so they're just trying to win elections, remember. So in order to win votes, politicians create policy that's appealing to voters. And that, to me, is a significant indicator that, that we still drive politics. We still push them. Hey, if they're willing to defund the police because the people spoke up and told them to, could you imagine, could you imagine if before all this stuff happened, if somebody walked up to Joe Biden and was like, hey, uh, defund the police? He'd be like, uh, yeah, no, that's a terrible idea. We're not going to defund the police. Oh, wait, am I saying the wrong word? I don't know. They made a huge mistake by choosing the word defund because apparently <laughs> that's not what we meant. We didn't mean take money away. But you chose the word that literally means take money away. <laughs> Either way, the idea of taking money away from police departments would be preposterous to the politicians if the people were not screaming it. The only reason they're for it is because people are screaming it. That's it. So I don't know. I'm not one to sit here and tell you how to raise kids. But I am one to sit here and say, perhaps it's something we should think about. Perhaps if we don't maintain those values that drove us to leave Europe, if we don't maintain those and foster them, they're going to go away. It's not genetic. We're not born with a capitalist mindset, I don't think. I think genetically, we're probably like, yeah, we'll do a little bit, survive, get by here and there. It's a cultural thing to thrive to make more than you need. And, and everyone does that. I don't care who you are. Everyone does that in America. If you live in anything more than a tent, you're making more than you need. If you have a subway pass, if your air conditioning comes on at night, if your heater works, you probably have more than you need. If you have a refrigerator full of food and a pantry full of food and more than one pair of shoes and more than three pairs of jeans or one pair of jeans for that matter, you have more than you need. So the moral of the story is, to keep culture alive, it takes work. You know, we have all these great businesses. We have Amazon. People gripe about them. We have Apple. People gripe about them. They still have iPhones. They still, have, they still use Amazon Prime. 
the only reason that we have all these things is because we're capitalists. And if you are the type of person who says, yeah, but we don't need those, I'd be fine without them. I really would encourage you like, not to be rude or crass or anything, or as an older person would say, don't be ugly. I love it when old people say, don't be ugly, talking about how the people are acting. But yeah, if you are the type of person that would rather um, work less and earn less, or no, actually, if you're the type of person who thinks you should work less and earn more in general, then I would encourage you to like move to somewhere where that, that, that happens, like Norway, Denmark, Sweden, like all the Nordic countries. And I know that they're not hardcore socialist. I know that. But they're, they're pretty socialist. Government has lots of power. Government controls lots of their money. And yeah, you can start businesses. You talk about barriers to entry. You go start a, you go start a company in Western Europe, you're going to see some barriers to entry. And I don't mean like a restaurant. They love restaurants. I'm talking about a manufacturing company. You'll see some red tape that you've never seen before. And sure, there's an equal way of life amongst a lot of the people. But like I started out saying, there's no breakthroughs. There's no, <laughs> there's no companies using drones to deliver packages within hours of you ordering them. Let's just leave it at that. Okay, 46 minutes of record time. Not record, but record. 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 Man, English is so tough. One word, pronounced three different ways, depending on how you use it. Spelled the same. It's tough, tough, tough language. I hope today's episode wasn't too heavy. I had a lot of my heart. I appreciate you listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. Go back out there to the world, wear your mask, be brave. You have to stand up for something even if they don't believe in you. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever the Nike slogan Colin Kaepernick was. I don't know. Just go out there, speak your mind. Even if it's not popular, do it respectfully. Be friends with everyone, even if they hate your political point of view. Thanks again for listening. Keep it tranquilo. Nowhere